You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together. Hey, Dell, how's it going this week? It's going good. Well, actually, it's been an interesting week so far. Uh, tried to record yesterday. My computer was all messed up. My microphone was broke. So we're recording a day late. And last week was the first time I've ever done post-production. It shows that I'm not as good as you, but I'm going to get there eventually. It was interesting. I got to learn a lot of things. I say, you know, an awful lot. You do. How's your week going? It's going well. I want to give you kudos for doing the post-production. Not a lot of people have ever done post-production on an episode ever. You finally did it and you got it done. Yes, it wasn't as high quality as I do it, but when I started, it wasn't high quality when I did it then. I've learned a lot of the tricks of the trade since then. I've learned some shortcuts that make it go more quickly and easily, and you'll get there. But the first step is you're done. You did it. So the fact that you've done it once is amazing. You can do it again. I have an amazing story from this weekend that I know you're going to find annoying because it's about golf, but it really underpins so much of what we say regarding theory and application. I have some fundamental flaws in my swing, and I know this, and I know this because I watch YouTube videos of pros coaching other pros and watching them swing through the golf position. And that's important. Swing the club through the positions of the swing. Don't position the club through the swing. There's a very nuanced difference there. I appreciate that difference and I can't do it. I know what a good swing looks like and my best friend's, one of my best friend's daughters was helping me over the weekend. She plays competitively. She's really good. She knows how to swing. I'm 44. She's 11. She's 11 years old. And I, part of me wonders what the other people at the driving range were thinking when they're watching this grown man ask this child for help. And I don't care. I don't care what they think because I know she knows what solid application looks like. And here's another rub. Okay, so first of all, let's get the ego out of the way. Like in poker, I don't have an ego when it comes to learning golf. If someone knows something better than I do, I'm going to listen to them. It doesn't matter that they're an 11-year-old girl. I'm going to listen to them. Same with poker. If someone knows better, I'm going to listen. Here is the biggest problem I see with coaching and the biggest problem I see with bringing that gap from theory to application. I know what I'm doing is wrong. But if I knew how to fix it, I wouldn't do it anymore. I also know that what you're doing is right. And if I knew how to do what you're doing, I would do it already. Let's just get that out of the way. I know I'm an A, you're a B. I don't know how to get from A to B. And this was made crystal clear when this 11-year-old girl was trying to explain to me what I need to do differently. She kept saying things like, you need to do this. You need to do this. She kept on saying, you need to get these results. You need to get your lag to look like this. You need to hear the whip at the end of your swing. You need to do whatever. No, 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 no. I need to know what actionable steps I can take to practice to stop doing what I'm doing and start doing what she's doing. That is a critical gap between theory and application. That's something I think this show does well and something I want to see this show continue to do well. And it's why so many people will have a hard time with any of our guidance. I mean, not just our guidance, but any guidance, because it's not just saying what you need to do differently, but walking through, walking you through step by step to get you from where you are now 
to where you need to be. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I want to say. That's quite all right. And going to be honest, I'm probably going to leave all of it in. Yeah, there's a couple of things there that are important to bring up. You know, I mean, the first being that, yeah, very much poker is like that. Golf is like that. A lot of things are like that where everybody has an opinion, but most of those opinions are coming from people who don't know how to do it right. So we're really, when we're going through this stuff, we're looking for that group of people, that 10%, 15% that are really good at, that know what they're doing. And those are the people we want to learn from. We don't need to worry about Joe Schmo from Pocono who has a handicap of 95. You're looking for that person that's got a handicap of 70, right? And, and I'm guessing because I'm not a golf person, but I think those numbers sound right. They don't. They don't? No, you, no. I mean, if you have a handicap of 70, that means you probably shoot in the 160, 170 range. You want someone who's like a single-digit handicap, like someone who shoots a 4. Yeah. I currently, for the record, I shoot a 16. I used to shoot an 8. My handicap used to be an 8. And then I quit golf to play poker, mostly full-time. And my golf skills atrophied. And by the way, I got older and less flexible. So, obviously, I wouldn't be the person to learn golf from. I don't even know how to talk about handicap. So I think that we want to learn from those people that know what's going on. And that counts for anything in life. The other thing that I think is really important is you're going to get an opportunity to practice golf a lot more in the future. That's right. That's right. I am stepping away from the podcast for a while. I may come back. I'm going to leave the door open. Working on this podcast with you has been a surprisingly rewarding experience. And longtime listeners will know I didn't even want to do the podcast. I did the pilot episode pretty much to humor you because I didn't think it was going to go anywhere. I thought we'd have fun. And then I decided to go full bore with post-production and website creation and curation and social media as great. But since then, yeah, my priorities have changed. I'm talking to my family. It seems like the best blend of my hobbies is to play poker when the weather is bad, either in the winter, when it's snowy, when it's rainy, when it's too cold. And I will make enough money playing poker then to pay for my golf membership. Golf, as it turns out, scratches pretty much all the itches poker does. It's mentally taxing. It really is a mental challenge to place the ball where you want to do it. It's emotionally grueling, especially when you're trying to recover from bad shots. It's socially rewarding because I play with a good group of guys. And it also has this added element of physicality where I carry my clubs and walk seven miles, 25 pound backpack on me. And if you think seven miles is long, yes, golf courses are measured from distance from tee box to green, but then you have to walk from the green to the next tee box and side to side while you're hunting for your ball. So there's a lot more to it. There's a lot involved. And I was talking to my family about that. And it turns out that my increased focus with real estate, my father being nearby now, helping my son homeschool, and the fact that poker is just no longer a significant interest in my life. I mean, I still plan on playing recreationally in home games and I'm going to crush them. I just can no longer justify the draw on my time that working on the podcast involves. And I will gladly do cameo appearances. I can do the intros and the outros. I can do mid-roll ads, whatever you need. But I mean, I, I definitely look forward to seeing where you take this project. And who knows, maybe poker will once again become a big priority in my life. I could definitely see that happening in five years when my son either goes off to college or moves out and gets his first job. And I have a lot of time to do both golf and poker. So... You know, I mean, I'm going to leave the door open. I'm not happy about you leaving the show. 
The truth is that this show cannot possibly be better in the short run with you stepping away. I'm hoping that it can be better in the long run because we were heading in a direction where we wanted this show to be a lot better. When I say it won't be better, what it's going to suffer is post-production. It's going to take me a little bit to get as good as you, but that's not nearly as important. I'm happy that you are doing the things you need in life. I want you to take care of yourself. I'm going to miss this time we spend together doing the podcast. Um, I say that we spend together. It's all online. We've never actually met face to face, but it feels like we're spending time together. And it it feels like you've become valued part of my my circle, my friends, my family. And so I'm going to miss that, but I'm happy for you. And where we're going to take this, I can tell you, you I can tell the listeners that there is going to be a continued growth for the blind stealing the blind. I'm going to have two new co-hosts, and I'm not going to name them right now. Everybody's going to get a chance to meet them next week. I can tell you that in some ways, for me, it's good that you're stepping away because I'm getting forced to do the things that I keep saying I want to do. I'm being forced to start planning better. I'm being forced to get the stuff done a little quicker. I'm being forced to do you know, post-production. I don't think anybody understands just how much work goes into a podcast if you want it to sound good. And that was one of the things, like from the very beginning, you wanted this to be different than the other podcast. We would listen to a podcast. You would be upset with the way we sounded. And I'd send you a podcast and you'd listen to it and you'd be like, oh my goodness, they're horrible. And it's like, yeah. So, And I'd be like, well, yeah, see, we're better than them. And you'd be like, yeah, but we're still not good enough. True, true. And you worked very hard to bring this quality up. So I am not going to meet that quality at first, but I am going to meet that quality. I, I have You've set a standard that at some point I have to reach, and I can't make it a long time. It's got to be quick. Yeah, you know, that's good for me on a personal level, but it sucks that I don't get to see my friend every week. You can still call me or text me. I will tell you what I tell my wife when she does the dishes or changes the laundry or does anything that is an act of service, which turns out to be my personal love language. You are a valued member of my team. Now, that kind of sounds funny. I'm, I'm telling Dell, you're a valued member of my team. And I'm telling Dell, that's what I tell my wife. That's what she says to me, too. It's kind of an inside joke. We definitely show appreciation for each other, even though it's kind of a sarcastic, glib, corny way. Like, hey, BJ, you're a valued member of my team. Like, oh, I love you, too. That's a, uh, yeah. So anyway, there you go. You are a valued member of my team. Thank you. Mine and Terry's inside joke is this. I say I love you, and she says I love cake. I thought you were going to go the Star Wars route and say me too, or 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 better yet, I know. <laughs> no, no. Han Solo shot first. She's not the Star Wars there. geek I am. So we do have a topic for this week. It's not all about saying goodbye to BJ. We still want to have a quality podcast this week. It's saying goodbye to being sucky at preflop. <laughs> I, it would be nice if we could do that, right? We're, we're doing another thing on preflop, and why are we doing another thing on preflop? Well, because. If everybody who listened to this podcast would start doing the stuff we say about preflop, we'd never have to talk about preflop again. But they're not, and they don't, and they're probably never going to. So we're going to be talking about the fact that people still get preflop wrong, right? This is the easiest part of the game, and people still get it wrong. And this is even true of some winning players. There are some players that are winning players, not because they're good at preflop, but because they're better at preflop than their opponents, or they're not necessarily good at preflop, 
but they're better at post-flop than their opponent. But they could make so much more if they got this part of the game right. I thought of this analogy over the weekend while I was prepping for this quarterly planning that we're doing at work. Right now we're doing quarterly planning, which is like, it is one event of four, makes sense quarterly, that sets us up powerfully for the entire year. This is where we figure out what we're gonna do for the next three months and all of our dependencies and our risks and our interactions and interfaces and making sure that we're delivering to our customers on time. We're doing this quarterly planning this week and it is exactly the same thing as getting ready for pre-flop ranges and pre-flop playability. Look, before you play pre-flop, when you get dealt your first two cards, you are just as good as Daniel Negreanu and Phil Ivey and everyone. You haven't made a single move, which means you haven't made a single mistake. Now, if you had a big test the next day, or if you had to give a big presentation, or you had a big job interview, or really anything of any importance, would you screw yourself over by staying up late, binge drinking Red Bulls and vodka, and doing lines of coke off a stripper's butt? No, you're not going to do that. You're going to set yourself up powerfully with a good night's sleep, a really healthy breakfast, maybe some exercise, maybe some stretching, maybe some renditation, and get yourself powerfully set up for that next day. That's what pre-flop is. You're getting yourself set up so that when those community cards come out, you get 6% of the information right there. And then you get another card and another card, and you're going to be in a better position to own your opponents because, yes, you could play perfect poker, but really, you could make a lot of money. You could make a real decent income if you just sucked less than your opponents. Yeah, it's very true. And the thing is, there's so much information out there. It's interesting. We always do these outlines. You always tell me not to do this, but this time I get to do it because I get to do the editing. So I get to talk about one of the things we talked about and we do the outline. And I said, there's no reason not to get pre-flop correct because there's so much information out there. And you said, I'd say there's no good reason because there's obviously a reason people still choose to play like crap. And I was, that forced me to think, by the way. And I was thinking about it. Yeah, there are some reasons. And some people will say it's just lack of discipline. And that could be true. Some people will say that it's a failure to do off-table study. And that can also be true. But I think another thing that plays a part in it is the difference between delayed gratification and instant gratification. So people, I think, play a lot of hands for this simple reason. Every time they play a hand, there's a little bit of dopamine from the anticipation of seeing that flop. There's an underlying addiction there to seeing that flop and getting that little dopamine. And you're going to get, believe it or not, we get more dopamine from the anticipation of a win than we actually do from the win. This is backed up by studies. I don't have them, but I'll try to find them and link them in the show notes. I don't have them by memory. But that right there, I think, is a driving factor why some people have to play bad hands or why people, when they put money in the pot, suddenly call out a position with a hand that they should just fold. Because that instant gratification of that little bit of dopamine from that anticipation of what that flop is going to be. The problem is they're losing money. It's bad form long term. If you're just a recreational player and that's all you want is that little dopamine rush, by all means, you don't even need to listen to this particular episode. Listen to a different one. But if you want to make money at this game, if you want to take and be better than your opponents, you have to start working on delayed gratification instead of instant gratification. It's not even that long term. When you're saying that the dopamine rush 
gets you over that hump and long-term, you're going to end up losing. It's not even that severely long-term. I played at a buddy's home game recently and I raised an early position to 6x, which by the way, should tell you something. If someone's raising an early position, they probably got something. The guy in the small blind called with 3-2 offsuit, smashed the flop, because the, the flop was like deuce, deuce, eight. And he ended up winning a moderate size pot. Not huge, not huge, but moderate size pot. He then busted out an orbit. Like, so it wasn't even long term. Like his dopamine rush lasted that hand. And then the whole, you know, over long term, you're going to lose. Yeah, he ended up busting within the orbit. So it wasn't even that long term. It can be like that, but it can also be longer term than that. One of the things that about poker is just that. I mean, that's another reason why people don't get pre-flop right. I knew a guy that would play nine, six of spades every time he got it because he thought he was destined to win with that hand. Now, he never counted all the times he lost with that hand. But if he won with that hand, he'd be sure to let you know, hey, I always win with this hand. You may watch him lose five, six times in a row or even more. So we lie to ourselves. That's another reason we don't get pre-flop right. We, we're always looking for the instant gratification. We're not willing to take the time to memorize the bottom of what our range should be in every position. Like, we don't have to memorize the entire range chart for every position. We only have to memorize the bottom of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you look at a chart and, and you're from early position and the bottom of your range in early position is 10-10, that's what you have to memorize because you know you're playing everything better than that. If you have a three-bet calling range, which shouldn't be very big, you shouldn't be calling very often with three-bet, but if you have a three-bet calling range, you only have to memorize the bottom of it because you're calling with maybe the top because you're going to be raising with stuff above the top of it. You're going to be folding stuff at the below the bottom of it, but you don't have to remember every single combination you have in that. So that's one of the things I think some people get overwhelmed with pre-flop is they think they have to memorize every little thing. They don't. You have to know where your cutoff is, all right? I think that simplifies it. I mean, I would love to say that's part of the application. Yeah, it is. I mean, the thing that I've always done is I've created my range charts. And I've created my range charts with every single combo from bottom to top. It's it's like that whole Drake thing, from the bottom to the top, now we're here. Apparently, Drake never created poker ranges because you're making it super simple. Just remember the bottom. And maybe remember the top if you have a four bet range or a re-raise range, whatever. That makes the decisions so much easier. And one of the things we know about pre-flop mistakes is that poorer decisions early on are far more difficult to recover from. You could make the best perfect decisions the rest of the hand and still lose because of fundamental errors you should have never been in the hand to begin with. And you're going to blame variance for kicking your butt instead of the fact that you didn't make a good mistake. I'm sorry, you made a mistake early on. You're going to say to yourself, but I played perfectly post-flop on the turn on the river. Look at these amazing EV lines I made. I am a poker god. Well, you made the best decisions. It's like you built the best house possible on a foundation of sand. And now the foundation washed away, your house crumbled down, and you're, you're blaming the builder when you should have blamed yourself for buying a sandlot. One of the things that's sticking out to me as, a, as we're talking here and I'm thinking about it is that people use the wrong thing to determine whether or not they played well. Most people use whether or not the chips get pushed their way as to whether or not they play well. Unless it's extremely obvious, 
it's extremely obvious, they might say, oh, I got lucky there. But for the most part, the majority of people are sitting down at the table, and when they win, they think it's because they did something good. And when they lose, they think it's because of variance. That's not how it works, because variance is, is positive and negative, and it does balance out over time. And people are going to say, no, it does. yes, it does. You're going to, if you play long enough, if you live long enough, play long enough, play enough hands, you're going to get as much positive variance as negative variance. Now, whether or not you live long enough, that's a whole nother thing we could talk about. I don't want to get into that here, but... It's not whether the chips get pushed your way or not as to whether or not you really won the hand. I mean, yes, you won the chips. All right. But that's not really determining whether or not you're winning at poker. What really determines whether or not you won at poker is, did you make better decisions than your opponent? So it doesn't matter which way the chips get pushed. If you didn't make better decisions than your opponent, then you lost that hand. That's the way I need to look at it. So when you go back and you look at it, sure. I won the hand, but I played terribly. That doesn't count as winning, really winning the hand. And if you play the hand right and you just happen to take and run into a cooler or they hit their two-outer on the river, that doesn't mean you played badly, and it doesn't mean that it's all variance. What you really need to be focused on is I played the hand better than my opponent. That's tough because poker players lie to themselves. We're always telling ourselves we played better than our opponent, <laughs> you know? So that's why we need... You know, we need that outside influence from coaches or friends that know how to play the game better or a vibrant community like we talked about last week to say, yeah, you didn't really play the hand that well. Or, hey, you didn't play it badly, you played it well. All of those are valid points. And we've talked about many of those points on several different episodes. We're talking about preflop, getting preflop right this episode. And we've talked about getting preflop right before. I really want to get home to the listeners what's going to make this episode different from our previous episode and others. And already I have one example. It's where you mentioned how to simplify your range charts. Just remember the top and the bottom of what you need to remember, and you could intuit everything that's in between. That's huge. But what else do we have? There are certain things that we can't do for the listener. We can put out information. You know, I can say something like, well, part of the problem is instant gratification as opposed to delayed gratification. But the listener has to take that and apply it to their life. They have to be able to sit there and go, oh, I want to play this hand. I, you know, I want to play this suited hand because I like playing suited hand. They need to be the ones to say, well, wait a minute. I really want that long-term satisfaction of having made better decisions than my opponent. And that's really what it comes down to, right? is doing that off-table work and applying it on the table. And it happens when you say, all right, I know this is not a profitable hand. I've done the study to know that 9-6 of spades is not a profitable hand just because I won a big pot with it a year and a half ago. It's not a profitable hand. I'm not going to play it. So we can give them the information. We have done that. We can give them different coping skills, and we've done that. Oh, one of the things that I would say is if you yeah, – I mean, you talked about it. If you – cannot play discipline or play your ranges at that time. It might be because you didn't sleep well enough. Well, don't play if you're tired, right? We've had that conversation, right? Maybe you need a sounding board. You know, if you have a spouse, hey, do you think I'm in the space that I, to play properly? You know, if you have a friend or a coach, this is how I'm, I'm going to go play. This is what my plan is for the session. Do you think I sound fit to play? You know, before you even go, because the reality is when we're tired, we're going to be less disciplined. We're going to make worse decisions. This is all about decision-making because one of the things that we haven't even mentioned here is the fact that you mentioned it. You did say it's going to be harder to recover 
if you make poor decisions pre-flop, it's also compounding, right? The decision gets worse on every street if we make a poor decision pre-flop. Unless we get lucky and, and hit the flop or smash the turn, it's going to get compounded with each street. We're going to have more problems and more difficulties by making bad decisions. We won't just have more problems and more difficulties making decisions, but because of pot geometry, those decisions will become much more expensive. That is absolutely correct. So there's that part. But also, I think we're talking about pre-preflop. We're talking about setting yourselves up powerfully to play the hand. The first decision that you made before you got dealt your whole cards was sitting down. Should you have even sat down at that table? Either, either because of game selection, maybe you shouldn't have sat down at that table, maybe you shouldn't have sat down at any table. So those are definitely decisions we want to talk about. And that's huge because I don't think we've talked about that as like getting pre-flop right. Getting pre-flop right involves getting pre-pre-flop right. Yeah, you know, it, I'm just thinking here, this this is funny. Yeah, that's true. But I'm sorry, my mind wandered a little bit. I, I'm not, I usually do a good job of listening. And I did hear what you said, by the way, but I was wondering, and you know what my mind wandered to is the fact that it's almost like we've come full circle because this thought occurs to me. You know, part of pre-flop is don't limp. And, and there are occasions to limp, but mostly don't limp. And it's almost like we've come full circle. Our first episode was the sin of limping. And here is going to be your last episode for a while. And we're talking about pre-flop and people limp pre-flop. So it feels like we've almost come back to full circle. You know, we started out this podcast talking about pre-flop action. And I'm sorry to, to bring it back to you leaving, but that just happens to occur to me. Don't limp. Make good choices before you sit down. What else do we got? What else can we share with them? What application can we give them? Well, there, there are two big things aside from constructing the solid range. There's position and stack size. We've talked about them really easily, and we can wrap both of them into constructing solid ranges. And here's really the nuts and bolts of it. You're going to have default ranges for early, middle, and late position. You're going to expand those ranges if any of the following conditions exist, you're in later position. Okay, there you go. Boom, you're in later position. That's positionally rare. Or you have nits left to act behind you because you know you can kind of punish them. Or stack sizes are deep. And we've talked about that before. You don't want to play pseudo connectors if you have shallow stack sizes, be implied odds and reverse implied odds. And go listen to our archive to understand more of that. The inverse is true. You can construct sound ranges taking position and stack size into account if you want to tighten your range based on the opposite cases. You're in earlier position. You want to tighten your range because you have more people left to act behind you and you're going to have a greater likelihood of getting three bet or, or re-raised. So you want to make sure that you play a range that can withstand getting raised. There are maniacs left behind you. Unlike the nits, these guys play loose. They play crazy. If they're going to play loose, you're going to play tighter and or if stacks are shallow, same thing, but the opposite way. If stacks are shallow, you don't want to play suited connectors. You're not going to get those reverse implied odds, those implied odds. It's not going to make mathematical sense from an EV perspective to play those hands. So we've wrapped everything together, which I don't think we did in our first pre-flop episode. We talked about constructing ranges and then we talked about like how to bet, when to bet, why to bet, free to bet. All those things, just threw that pun in there. But the whole thing is, it all comes together. Stack sizes, being positionally aware, range construction, expansion, and tightening thereof, all come together. It's all one holistic corporate synergy, like what I'm trying to achieve. Yeah, I, I want to take and throw my two cents on everything you just said there, and I want to start with the position. Like, 
the the best players in the world play a lag style. Uh, that's loose aggressive for anybody who doesn't know. They play a lag style. That these are the best players that are making the most money, that are the most advanced in the game. But it's important to understand how they play that style. They're still not loose from under the gun. They're loose in later positions when they have the opportunity to to act last post flop. So that's when they're loosening up. They're not loosening up from under the gun or under the gun plus one. I mean, some of them do, but I think the better ones you'll find are fairly tight in these positions. And then when you look at it, it's like you said, if the stacks are shallow, these players that play that lag style that are the best in the world, well, guess what? They're usually playing 200, 300, 400, 500 big blinds deep games. And you're not playing that at 1-2 or 1-3 or even 2-5. So you have to understand how stack size affects the game to make proper pre-flop decisions and what your position, how your position affects it to make proper pre-flop decisions. So everything you said there is gold. I've added, I basically said the same thing, but I ran my mouth longer to do it. No, that's fine. That's fine. I want to bring it back to my 11-year-old friend, one of my friend's daughters who helped me with golf because she struggled articulating to me how to get from where I was to where she is. We just talked about constructing ranges and tightening and expanding based on position and stack sizes, and that all sounds well and good from esoteric theoretical. Here's how you get from where you are to where you need to be. We've mentioned Flopzilla so many times. Let's crack it open and actually do this. Take your ranges as they are right now, which are probably crap, like nine six and spades. Throw it in there. Create some hypothetical range for an opponent. Maybe the range that you would like to have. So you could play your past self, or let me say, you could play your current self that plays 9-6 suited against your future self, which you would envision to have a more well-balanced range. Plug that into Flopzilla, load some random flops, and see who has range advantage on a multitude of boards, and see who connects more strongly in a multitude of ways. Chances are, it ain't you. It's the one that you aspire to be. And that reality is going to sink in. It's going to hit you. And you're going to realize, oh, wow, if I get, if I got rid of my old crappy ranges and adopted these new ranges, which, by the way, they may not be perfect, but you can tweak them over time. You will see where you're leaving money on the table and you will see where you have leaks, where you're just like throwing money away. I think that's good. I think another thing for people to do is, listen, we're not fans of range charts here. But they are a good place to start. If your if your preflop is really messed up, go find some good range charts. I think Red Chip's got an app that I think works really good for newer players or players that are struggling with the quality of their preflop play. But there's others out there. You can find range charts all over the place. Find them, start there, and then from there learn how to construct ranges yourself. You know what I mean? So you can learn when you can play those suited connectors, who you want to play those suited connectors against, who you want to set mine against, how deep you need to be. You can start range construction after you get to the point where you're not bleeding money pre-flop. So I think that's another way to apply it. Find those range structures. You don't have to memorize them. Like I said, start by memorizing what the bottom of that range, what your cutoff is. Um, and, And that's a good place to start. Absolutely. I don't think I have anything else to add on this topic. I think I probably spoke more during this episode 
than any other episode. You tend to do the most speaking in the episodes because <laughs> you're the, you're the theory guy. I'm the application guy. You're the theory guy. I, it's interesting because I do take and do more of the talking and I do have a tendency to ramble on about theory. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm always right. I'm willing. I'm open to the fact that I may be wrong. It's interesting. Uh, without giving away too much, I know that one of my new co-hosts is definitely uh, more knowledgeable on theory. So I'm going to be taking more of your position and he's going to take more of my position. And the other one has a lot of experience as a professional poker player and she'll be bringing a lot to the show. She, spoiler alert, we got a female co-host. Yes, we do. Diversity. Excellent. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I'm very happy to have her being a part of this and I can't wait to introduce her next. Sounds great. So I've got nothing more. I, I hope everybody listens. I hope everybody starts making more money, uh, except for when they play me or you. There you go. All right. Thanks for joining me, Dell. Thanks, BJ. It's awesome as always. Awesome too. Love you, bro. And until next week, stick to the plan and may all your variants be positive. This has been The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. If you haven't already done so, consider subscribing. And when you're not counting your chips, take a moment to leave the guys a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours. Get yours.